One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is episode 5 of our mini-series called Freak Ships of the 19th Century. Now, you will have learned from parts 1 to 4 that this series is based on a fabulous pamphlet that was written in 1966 by a chap called Jay Guthrie who worked for the Marine Classification Society Lloyd's Register and created this booklet. As it says on the title page... For private circulation amongst the staff only. I'm quite enjoying breaking his rules by bringing it to a massive audience in our podcast. Anyway, it presents what it describes as unorthodox ships, rebels from tradition and freaks of the nautical world, which throughout the whole of the 19th century attained transient fame or notoriety before disappearing from the scene forever. Episode 1 was on monitors, episode 2 was on circular ships, 3 was on cigar ships, 4 was on the Cleopatra, an extraordinary vessel built to bring an ancient Egyptian obelisk to London from Alexandria. And today we're exploring the SS Bessemer, otherwise known as the Swinging Saloon Ship. Let's start as always by hearing a little about what Mr Guthrie has to say about this vessel in his pamphlet. The idea of a ship's cabin swung in gimbals, which would remain level whilst the rest of the ship stood on her head, must have been uppermost in every anguished passenger's mind since very remote times. One of the earliest proposals to put the idea into practice, in 1873, was Allen's Floating Saloon, which consisted of a large, hemispherical hold built into the centre of a ship in which floated a hemispherical saloon. The space between the two shells, roughly four inches, being filled with water. The saloon would be guided by a central pillar fitted to a universal joint on the main deck beams, and entrance to the cabin would be by a companionway on this deck and a flexible spiral stairway. The lower part of the swinging saloon would be ballasted, and the designer's intention was for the saloon to behave like a floating compass card. Henry Bessemer, of steel fame, must have had faith in the idea, however, for in 1875, Earl's Shipbuilding Company built a large cross-channel passenger vessel called Bessemer to run between Dover and Calais with a long swinging saloon situated squarely amidships. The ship was designed by a professional naval constructor, but the drawings of the saloon and its controlling mechanism were provided by Bessemer himself. The ship measured 350 foot in length, 40 foot beam, 65-foot over paddle boxes, 
with a designed draft of 9 foot. The saloon was 70 foot long, 30 foot wide and 20 foot high, and with its hydraulic operating gear weighed 180 tons. As the ports of Dover and Calais were extremely narrow in the 19th century, the Bessemer, indeed like most cross-channel steamers of her time, was built double-ended and had forward and after rudders shaped to conform with the hull outline. Bessemer's original idea had been to have the saloon stabilised both transversely and longitudinally, but this would have increased the expense enormously. As pointed out by the naval architect, the vessel would be confined to narrow, choppy waters, where serious pitching would not be expected. The cabin was accordingly designed to damp out transverse oscillation only. To keep pitching to a minimum, the buoyancy of the ship's extremities had to be kept as low as possible. There was no forecastle and no poop. In fact, the deck for about 48 foot from each end had only 3 foot freeboard and was shaped in a turtleback. To find out more about this brilliant ship, I spoke with Zach Schieferstein, Archive Officer at Lloyd's Register Foundation's Heritage and Education Centre. Here is the brilliant Zach. Zach, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Sam. We were just uh, talking before we started recording about um, coming across this. I think that I first came across this story in a leaflet called Freak Ships of the 19th Century, which is something we explored last year. It's in the Lloyd's Register Foundation archives, and the, um, there are a number of crazy vessels in there which I, um, we, which we we focused on in the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Is that how you came across this, or did you come across this in a separate a separate place? Yeah, in a similar place, really, Sam. Um, one of my colleagues that I work with just sort of mentioned the ship, piqued my interest, and yeah, I just took it from there, really. It's a, a, quite a, a great story of innovation, but there's some humour in there as well. So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the... Well, let's just start. Tell us what it is. What it, What is the SS Bessemer and why is it important? Uh, well, it's a cross-channel paddle steamer launched on the 24th of September in 1874. It was built at the Earl Shipbuilding in Hull, and it was designed by uh, Sir Henry Bessemer, um, sort of famous for a lot of inventions of his time, uh, especially sort of the Bessemer process for making steel. Right. What was that? Do you know anything about that? Not too much, um, but I know that it was about sort of uh, the, the blowing of the steel, um, and right. it sort of really revolutionised the manufacturing of, of cheap steel, basically. So it's sort of lauded as one of these great Victorian inventors. Yeah. So he's one of these people who's just seeing what the world is doing at the time and trying to come up with new solutions to problems, one of which is um, a common one when it comes to being at sea, and that's feeling sick. Uh, we know that Bessemer, I think we know that Bessemer was himself, he suffered from seasickness, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was uh, quite severely bad, actually, which, uh, considering that he built a ship, designed a ship, uh, and opened his own uh, shipbuilding company. Uh, you might think is a bit odd, but yeah, that's <laughs> one of the, the main crucial and interesting elements about the, the Bessemer is that it was designed or intended anyway to, to combat seasickness, um, which, yeah, especially for that travel from, because it was operating the sort of England to France Channel, it was, that was yeah. really choppy seas. So it was supposed to be anyway this, you know, incredible design that would stop anybody feeling seasick. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, let's just uh, stop for a minute and talk about seasickness because for those who have not suffered from it they may wonder what all the fuss is about do you suffer from seasickness Zach? I've never been terribly afflicted by it but it, I can understand where it comes from 
Yeah, I've it's a kind of a mind over matter thing for me. But I was sailing on a square rig ship when I was younger. I was about twenty, and it was the first time I'd been on board a, a anything apart from a ferry, and um, the movement of the ship basically kind of paralysed me. It was quite extraordinary. Um, I got better over time, and and now I can I can master it. But when you are struck down with seasickness, it is a, a profoundly debilitating problem it's, it's often quite funny to other people who can't um who, who don't suffer from it but you get dizzy you not only feel sick you feel horrendous and i traveled um on sailing ships for maybe two years often with uh paying members of the public who'd never been on ships and occasionally you'd get someone who'd suffer from it and um and yeah almost paralyzed had to sit down uh, often lie down and they they can't move it's a it's a, a truly terrible thing so here we have um mr bessemer who suffers from this um what does he decide to do about it zach well he decides to patent a design essentially that would create a swinging cabin within a ship um right so, so hang on let's just stop there a swinging cabin within a ship what does that mean <laughs> Uh, so essentially, the theory behind the design was that um, he would install uh, like almost like a cradle within the centre of a ship, and it would have uh, pivots, gimbals, and hydraulic engines sort of supporting this central cabin uh, that would allow it to move. And in theory, it was designed to move against the uh, the sort of external factors of the water. So it was supposed to move at exactly the same rate as the rest of the hull in the water. But as we'll see, um, sometimes what's uh, in theory is not always what happens in practice. But that was the theory behind it. So um, it, it's it's kind of suspended inside the hull. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or, or balanced on these gimbals. So when the hull moves, the room stays still. Well, it should really it should counteract the movement. So if the hull's sort of swaying left, ah. the cabin would be swaying right in, in, yeah. again, in theory. But yeah, that was the that was the sort of theory behind it. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because ships move in numerous directions, right? So they roll, um, tip left, and they tip right. But they also uh, pitch forward, or you know, towards the bow and towards the stern. And they also yaw, so they uh, on a kind of a horizontal plane, going left and right. So there's quite a lot to deal with. Um, how did he? develop his idea well uh so he had a house in denmark hill uh and in his garden uh what he did is he created a 20 foot not replica of a cabin but he made a 20 foot model of a cabin essentially suspended this on pendulums uh in the garden in his mansion uh, i say a house in denmark hill it was a mansion he had an observatory there um, right. uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it worked essentially in in this model in this design it, it worked and then if, a little shortly afterwards is when he painted a design, uh, opened up the Bessemer Saloon Ship Company and then got to work with actually putting it into practice for a ship. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's a shame. I'm assuming the model doesn't still survive because that would be a cool model to have a look at. <laughs> sadly, no. In fact, the, I think, if I'm right, the whole house is actually, it was sadly sort of affected by bombing raids in the Second World War. So even his mansion in Denmark Hill is sadly no more. Denmark Hill, is that in London? Yes. Yeah. Uh, whereabouts, do you know? I think near the Hearn Hill area, but I could be really wrong there. 
<laughs> well, anyone who's listening, get in touch. Tell yeah. us we're Denmark killers. <laughs> Let's try and find out where Bessemer's house once was. Right, so he's he's come up with a ingenious solution to counteracting the movement of a ship's hull, and he's built a model, and he's set up a company. That's where we are. The trick now is to convince people that this is a sensible enough idea to give him money. Is that where we were? Yeah, yeah, that, and that's really that's exactly what happens. He's he's able to sort of galvanise on his, uh, I, I wouldn't say celebrity, but you know, he's he's well known as an inventor. Um, he's by this time he's sort of the Bessemer process for steel production is well underway, and uh, like you know, like other Victorians of the period, he he's known for his inventions. People start giving money and and investing in it, um, and they're able to raise, I think, about. £250,000 and... Wow! That's a lot of money at the time. Yeah, people are really... And I guess it's for a a good cause in the fact that people want to cross over and and travel to France and people don't want to be seasick. (laughs) So people see it as... Yeah, they they see it as this. If it works, it's going to be incredible. Yeah. Remind me what period this was, what time this was? So uh, sort of the idea um, and the, the testing of the, the cabin that we just spoke about uh, was about the, eight, the late 1860s and uh, the ship is launched uh, in 1874. Mm. So there's a, a time of great maritime innovation. Um, I love stories like this because, um, as you listeners will probably have worked out, <laughs> the invention doesn't work, which is why we don't have Bessemer ships everywhere. Uh, and it's uh, it's an important reminder, I think, that um, so many of these innovations fell by the wayside. Very few of them actually survived and, and became uh, permanent parts of maritime technology or were lucky enough to be remembered. And this is just one of an enormous amount of inventions and designs. Um, so what happened next? Did he get the money? Yeah, he gets the money. And essentially they get to work with building the ship. Um, as I said sort of earlier, it was built by the Earl Shipbuilding uh, an iron company in Hull. Mm. It's the yard number 197. And the uh, they enlist quite a famous uh, naval architect as well at the time, uh, Edward Reed. Um, he's enlisted as the naval architect to do a lot of the designing of um, the machinery and things like that. But um, it, And it goes into way. It's, um, I think from some of the reports at the time, people are quite impressed by how quickly parts of the ship are done um and it is one of those things where there is a lot of um for use of a better word a lot of media drummed up around around this vessel um mm. lots of, of newspaper reports and journals are, are interested in in this you know the, the bessemer saloon or the the swinging saloon so they're very very interested in it yeah so it's fascinating so the the guys who designed it clearly think it's going to work Yes. I mean, yeah, they, the, the media are excited. Everyone's excited. Um, and the let's just talk about how it was uh, propelled, about 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 its engines and how it's moved. Did, did it have any mast or sails? Was it was it uh, purely a motor vessel? Purely a motor vessel. Um, it had two sets uh, of paddle, paddle wheels as well. It's a paddle steamer. Um, two sets, so yes. not more than one on each side. It had two on each side. Yeah, so it had four... Four wheels in total. Um, mm, I'm which, not sure I've seen one like that before. No, and, and this is another... Um, there's sort of several elements to the, the design of this ship which do make it, you know, the, the, the swinging saloon is the 
the piece of the resistance really of, of, of the, the interesting and intriguing elements. But yeah, there's a few other bits with it. Um, it has two direct action engines capable of about 750 to 800 horsepower, and they have four boilers per engine. And it has a, a sort of a rudder um, at sort of both ends of the vessel as well. Yeah. And, and that was different from other paddle steamers of the time, yeah? Yes, yes. There's one or two um, of those those sort of design features which we see in some other paddle steamers, but for the most part, it's still, um, you know, it's, it's innovative, I'd say, throughout the design of the vessel, really. Yeah. Let's just talk about the saloon again. So the saloon bit, is, that sits... Well, to tell us where, where it is on the ship and how it works. Okay, so uh, the swing saloon sits within the centre of the vessel. This design feature was so that uh, the machinery that would operate and counteract the movement of the ship's hull could all be put into place. But what's odd about this design is that in, a, in a, an ordinary paddle steamer, that's where the engine and boilers would go. So the engine and yeah. boilers have to go... Sort of, they're like a hundred feet apart from each other, and they have to go away from where this the the central frame is really. And then within the frame, you have these gimbals, pivots, that, um, and the hydraulic engines, which are put in place so that we can counteract the movement. Mm. It sounds creaky and dangerous. I don't even know the <laughs> difference between a gimbal or a pivot. Do you? <laughs> What's going on there? No, I actually don't. Um, I think they sort of act as similar things. Um, but yeah, it's a, a lot of work went into it um, uh, and which, you know, may or may have led into the success of, of the overall design. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. I think that the joy of this story, actually, is that um, several people have come across it and everyone gets the principle, right? So you've got this this swinging saloon, but I, I haven't actually come across anyone, uh, without being rude to you, Zach, who, who, who actually understands the engineering and the how, how it worked. I think people should um, look into this. I think it's a, an opportunity for research. Yeah, I, I do. Um... It's, you know, I don't understand the technical elements of it at all, really, you know, if I'm being very honest. Um, at, at the Lloyd's Register Foundation, within our archives, we have 
plans and specifications and yeah. server reports, but it's, you know, and, and they go into depth a lot about it as well. But it was, even at the time, it was constantly referred to as, you know, a, a, a novel ship or experimental. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, at the time people realised it was a, a peculiar <laughs> design, really. Um, uh, because Lloyd's Register is a classification society, is there any evidence in the archives of, of surveyors going, hang on a minute, we, we actually don't know what we're dealing with here? Um, or did it did it seem to have kind of passed their tests easily enough? Uh, it did pass the tests, but um, they were uh, requested sort of... Um, they had concerns, really. So uh, the, the surveyor who went at the time, David Williamson, if I'm correct, who sort of served the the whole area as of most of the surveyors from Lloyd's register would be assigned to a district um yep. and he went when the uh the, when the sort of plans were first laid before the general committee he visited the shipyard with the secretary of the time who was um bernard weymouth and they went to survey the ship and it was all found to be you know in in accordance with the the, the rules and regulations for for a steamer of the time um but yeah. there's still throughout the the some of the documents will say novel experimental and peculiar on there and there, there is i think about a 14 page specification was laid before the committee as well which is quite odd for a, a paddle steamer uh, of its time in terms of the records that lloyd register foundation has and that again sort of shows that it was even though it passed the, the the surveying and the classification, it was they knew that there were some odd elements to it, and they had some questions about some of the plating and and how strong it would be around the cabin. Um, I mean, if you imagine you've got all of this extra hydraulic engines and and pivots and and a steel frame, it's it definitely raises questions about the seaworthiness and safety and just operation, uh, yeah. sort of how it's going to function. <laughs> So what do we know about uh, how it did operate? I mean, was it, well, actually, just let's dial back a little bit. Um, <laughs> did the building process go well? Uh, yeah, it did. Some of the elements took longer to, to build, um, namely the swinging saloon. As you can imagine, with it being such a sort of inventive and experimental design, it, it wasn't the most straightforward thing to build. Um, and the rest of the vessel was, um, was, was largely complete before the saloon was. Because apart from the addition of the, the four paddle wheels and a, a few of the other tweaks that had to be made. Most of it was a relatively um, straightforward vessel to design, uh, especially for that, the, the shipbuilding company. The rest of it seemed to go up, go fairly well, really. So eventually it gets to sea and it's launched. Uh, what happens next? <laughs> That's where it gets even more <laughs> interesting, really, I think. <laughs> uh, it was quite a, a short-lived seagoing career overall. But there were uh, several trial journeys. Uh, there was three trial journeys made in total. On one of them, uh, she broke a paddle wheel, which isn't the best sign. But, you know, uh, you'd, you'd trial a vessel to make sure that it can overcome these difficulties. And not an uncommon thing to happen to paddle ships as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's not that in itself is, isn't um, outstanding. But, um, yeah, there's a... The maiden voyages, I think, when, when uh, things first start to go downhill a little bit, really... She's on a journey to Calais. Uh, it's um, it's not a public journey. Henry Bessemer is on board, and it's sort of like a private uh, journey. Is I think trying to sort of again galvanise more interest and show people that the swinging saloon it will combat seasickness, and the vessel will be the success he wants it to be. 
although they don't end up trialing the swinging saloon <laughs> or this maiden journey uh, i think there's some sort of reason is that it, the, the sea isn't choppy enough and henry bestman doesn't seem to think that it needs to be used at this time that's interesting so it, it's 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 obviously in the ship but they don't trial it so are they not letting people into it they'll let people into it um so that you know it's into the the swinging cabin itself people are in there and it's a beautifully ornately richly designed space as well but um they just don't engage any of the uh these swinging capabilities ah. but yeah on, on this journey uh quite a few mishaps really uh it's calm weather with only a little bit of wind i think she makes the journey in roughly good run time of about an hour an hour and a half uh but crashes into the pier at Calais. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, ah. It's held there by the French authorities. They have to pay a, a fine. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's some great reports from this at the time, especially the London Illustrated News has a really good uh, illustration of the, the, the paddle steamer just cruising straight into uh, the pier. And uh, what's, I guess, funny, but, you know, Disheartening for for Bessemer and, and for Edward Reed is that on the return journey to Dover they also crash into the port there. Uh, no crew of passengers are injured, but I do imagine that by this time Henry Bessemer's pride is taking a slight bit of a hit. Yeah, so it sounds like there are manoeuvrability issues with this four paddle wheeled ship, and that they didn't trial or engage the swinging saloon what how do you what do you, what do you read between those lines Zach? uh i think really that the the doubts and concerns that people had were yeah were well placed one of the things about the paddle wheels was that they would have these two sets that would be too close to, together and resorting in the effect that essentially the rear wheels would be moving but they're attempting to move water that's already moving at a high speed mm. because the front paddle wheels are they're obviously moving that water and it's creating a drag. And again, this is one of those things where the four paddle wheels were intended to provide the speed that's needed to, to, to push this vessel forward, but they end up limiting the speed, doing exactly the opposite of what they're intended to do. Yeah, so it's, it's so heavy because of all of the extra kit in it to allow this saloon to swing. Yeah. Um, I, I can just imagine the, you know, the rear paddle wheels spinning but not gripping anything because the water's already moving. That seems to me a fairly obvious... Uh, that Someone should have been able to spot that coming. Yeah, and people at the time did. Uh, again, in, in the newspaper reports, people who... Well, I, mean, I don't know who wrote the newspaper reports, but they don't seem to be um, engineers or shipbuilders, but they still they express concerns that are sort of saying, like, you know... To us, this seems like it wouldn't work, but the you know Edward Reed and Bessemer are, are, are just believe that no, this is the way it's going to work. This way, it needs to be able to move at such a speed to to sort of carry the the weight of the vessel. It doesn't quite work. Yeah, it, it's interesting that um, this is basically exactly the same period that HMS Captain was launched, which was another. Uh, it's a vessel which we've covered in the podcast, and it. It does seem that this is a, a period in which people are trying out things, but there's no safety structure around it, or at least that there is some, but it's not sufficient 
to stop people building things which are dangerous. Is that is that fair, or was there sort of more more protection for the the poor people who had to get on these boats? I think for the for the people getting on them, maybe not so. Um, I know you've covered the the Plimsoll line yeah. and the load line in, in other episodes, and and that was really instrumental in in sort of seafare and safety. Um, but yeah, the, the invention of, the, of these vessels, they're given a, a bit of a free reign. I mean, Lloyd's Register was classifying them so that they would be operationally safe, but you don't always know how these vessels are going to fare on the seas themselves. Um, there, there was another paddle steamer launched in the same year as well. It was called the Castellina, and that was, again, intended to tackle seasickness and had a somewhat similar design with a, a rudder st- at both ends, at the stern and bow of the ship. And this was because it was too, um, they couldn't really manoeuvre that well com- coming into these smaller French ports. But again, this, this, this other paddle steamer, it, didn't, it never kicked off. The designs were never what they should have been. And you could say that maybe they should have had a, a, maybe some more um, sort of restraints. But I think it's a wider social element of the period that there was a lot of, of invention and, and people wanted to try things. Yeah, it's a fascinating period. Um, mm. I'm often asked as a historian which period I'd like to go back to, and I, I, I think the 1870s would be a bit mad. I'd have to get a really good hat. Um, so what do we know? What happened? Was it all a disaster? Did did anything happen to the, the patented design? Because he's obviously designed this and he's registered a patent. Um, what do we know about that? Uh, sadly, not much really happens after these sort of mishaps. Uh, as I said earlier, that there's two on two occasions the vessel crashes into ports, the effects of the limiting the seasickness don't really work. They use a sort of steersman at one point um, who has a spirit level to operate the levers on the brakes of this swinging saloon. That wow. doesn't work. It, it continues not really to function in the way that it's supposed to. So eventually the swinging saloon is permanently locked into place and then vent- and then ultimately it's removed in 1876. But yeah, I keep saying but here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, um, the the, the best doesn't fare much better, really, even after the, the saloon is, is removed. She sort of runs aground just up the way from Grimsby in North Lincolnshire. She isn't too far from where she's built. She's floated back to Hull and sold shortly afterwards. And it's not long after this that the uh, Bessemer Saloon Steamship Company, the stock company that was created to build the ship and it's intended to keep building vessels that would combat seasickness it it's in liquidation this the yeah. ship sold it sold for i think about twenty thousand pound and considering they raised about two hundred thousand you know it, it it sells for a lot less than probably what um mm. they wanted it to anyway so it doesn't the painted design doesn't go anywhere but and this is one of the elements i love about the story is that the screen or the story about the saloon doesn't quite end when the ship is sold. <laughs> right, right. What happens? So essentially, the naval architect, Edward Reed, pays for the saloon to be removed, uh, and he installs it in his house as a billiards room. So it's home, right. in, it's home in Swanley, Hextable House, and it's a, it's a really richly ornately designed space. It has sort of this broad banister staircase leading down to the saloon. It's got murals on the walls, Moroccan leather seats, they really went all out trying to make it a sort of lavish, comfortable place. Uh, even in a lot of the newspaper reports and journals at the time, they might be, I guess, criticising the the swinging saloon and its ability to stop seasickness. But they, a lot of them still mention how comfortable and lavish and, and just great mm. the interior is. 
So it's in Hextable House in Swanley. It's used as a billiards room for Edward Reed. It stays there as well. But later on, uh, it's turned into a lecture hall. Uh, Hextable House was converted into a horticultural college. Uh, and it's used sort of as, a, as a, a woman's college at that point for, for horticultural studying. Sadly, the college was hit by a bomb during raids in the Second World War. But the story doesn't quite end there. Several panels of the original cabin were salvaged. And they later appear on the Antiques Road show in 2012, which I just I just think is it's a great that you know 1874 it's built, <laughs> and in 2012 there's still, albeit I think there was maybe two or three panels from the cabin, but yeah. it survives. And I I really like this story that it was used as a billiards room and then as a horticultural college as well. It's um you don't often get these sorts of stories. <laughs> no, there's um th- there's something going on there. Uh, which I really like. So uh, I don't know whether it's an ironic nod to what was supposed to be or a wry sense of humour, but if you're going to choose a room for the swinging saloon, then a billiards room is literally the best (laughs) one to have because uh, the one thing you can't have with a billiards room is to have the room moving, otherwise all the balls will roll around. Uh, So it was was proof at last that that the room was lovely and he could maybe fantasize about being on board his ship and being able to play so 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 still would it be and so uh, unaffected by movement of the sea that he could even play billiards do you know what even saying that makes me think uh obviously talking off the top of my head but i guess that that is part that was part of the sales pitch to get people to invest they they pitched it that they could build a <laughs> saloon that was so still on board a moving ship that you can play billiards. <laughs> That's what I reckon, Zach. <laughs> That's what I do. Anyway, it's a wonderful story. Thank you very much indeed for sharing it to me today. You're very welcome, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then the first thing you must do, of course, is go back and listen to the other four, yes, four episodes of Freak Ships of the 19th Century. And be sure to check out our extra material on YouTube. We've made a totally brilliant animation explaining how on earth the Cleopatra managed to bring back an ancient Egyptian obelisk from Alexandria to London. And there is much more. Uh, The latest video is based on a cutaway drawing of a first-rate Royal Naval War ship around 1690 showing all of the technical detail inside the ship and it's absolutely fascinating please do leave us a review on itunes or whatever app you're listening to but most importantly itunes it's hugely important it helps us rise up the rankings which makes us easier to find which means we can teach more people about the value of maritime history and that of course is why we are all here as always please remember that this podcast comes from both the society for nautical research and lloyd's register foundation so please do everything you can to find out what those brilliant institutions are up to that's it bye
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.